Welcome to the 180 Podcast. You are listening to a teaching of the 180, a new church committed to learning to love Jesus and love like Jesus. Our prayer is that God would use this teaching to help you grow closer to Him and that you would feel moved to join us in person, where you can grow in community with the larger 180 family. Bienvenue à la balado-diffusion de l'Église 180. Vous écoutez un enseignement de l'Église 180, une nouvelle Église qui s'est engagée à apprendre à aimer Jésus et à aimer comme Jésus. Notre prière est que Dieu utilisera cet enseignement afin de vous aider à vous rapprocher de Lui et que cela vous donne envie de vous joindre à nous en personne où vous pourrez vous épanouir au sein de la communauté qu'est la grande famille de l'Église 180. Hey, if you're tuning in online, we're just so happy that you've tuned in. And maybe you've never visited us in person. But well, let me tell you, people were singing this morning, and you missed out. The room was uh, really, really great. And I'm so grateful for our worship team as well that helps us to, to sing and to maybe put words to things that we feel sometimes. And it's hard to always express what we're feeling. Maybe you felt that and you're experiencing that. But if we haven't met yet, thank you, Queen Glory. If we haven't uh, met yet, my name is uh, Dom, and I'm... Uh, one of the leaders here, and we've been in a, in a pretty challenging series that we started 2024 in. We, we actually started a series at the beginning of the year uh, by helping us uh, reflect on the first book of the Bible. And one of the things I realized as we've been working on this series, I realized that we wanted to look at a section of the Bible that maybe you wouldn't read on your own. Like if you open the Bible and you read at the beginning, it might be really hard or you get to a chapter and you feel stuck and then like you stop reading. And so we wanted to kind of help you and encourage you to read the first few chapters of the first book of Genesis and to just know that even when you're stuck, God can still show you things that you need to see and understand. And that, that keeps us keep reading the Bible and understanding it in new ways. And this week I actually realized something that's been helping me. Maybe it's helping you. One is I find that even when I'm reading the Bible, I get frustrated because I'm like, I have so many questions about this. And until I don't understand this, I, I can't read anymore. And I've been asking God to just help me to say, you know, I have questions about this, but I'm going to keep reading. And I'm going to keep asking God to show me some new things. Maybe you're learning that. But one of the gifts of my life is I had the blessing of being married to an artist. Okay, some of you maybe don't know this about my wife. You know, she helps at the church. But over the past few years in our marriage, I've seen her like start to develop like artistic skills. Not just like, you know, everybody has like, oh, I'm an artist in my heart and you make something and it sucks. You know, everybody has something like that. That's maybe it's some of you, right? But, but then there's people like they love art and they develop the skill and the, the craft and they get better and they improve, right? And so my wife, I've seen her do this. And it's been very special in our home to see the power of art and some of the paintings that she paints and how art is meant to stretch you and even to help you see the world from a new perspective. We have some rooms in our house that some of her paintings will go up in and after a while they come down and a new one goes up and it even changes the feeling of the room just because there's new art in there. And if you've seen art that's really beautiful, it's meant to draw you beyond just kind of the way we think about life, which is usually logical, efficiency, how things are useful. And I'm more prone to thinking of life that way. Like, how will this be useful? Like, how little do I have to do of this to move on, right? And I tend to view life that way, and it's been a gift to kind of see a different perspective. Now, if you always see life that way, reading the Bible will be challenging especially reading the first few chapters of Genesis because you'll always feel like, how would those be useful? How will this help me with my kids? How will this help me with my marriage? And sometimes the Bible doesn't work that way. And so I want to just encourage you to realize that we live in a world where we're always thought about thinking in efficiency ideas and the Bible's inviting us into this artistic world that God is creating at the beginning of the book of the Bible. 
One of the great artists of our time, his name is Picasso, some of you have heard of him. Uh, you know, he has this great quote, you'll see it on the screen. He has this profound saying that he uses. He, ta- he says, computers are useless, they can only give you answers. And, and it's a reminder, spoken like a true artist, <laughs> that he was living at a time, the beginning of computers, and this idea that we are computer pe- people living in an artist's world. And we feel that when we read the beginning of Genesis. That God is presented to us as a God who's an artist. He's creating. He's putting all these things in place, and they're beautiful. And we look at the, those, those first few chapters, and we just want answers. Like, did this really happen? How does that not make sense? That doesn't work with my scientific mind and all those things. And I want to just encourage you to remember that the Bible, like we talked about this last week, has these different layers of meaning that we're invited into. And our dominant layer, our dominant way of viewing almost everything is through the scientific modern way. So that's our first lens that we approach things with. People in the Bible didn't do that. People in the Bible didn't think of knowledge that way all the time or the truth in that way. And I think for some of us, you might notice that even in our culture, we still have a way that we use art that helps us to think about, you know, things that are beyond just the reach of our words. Here's a famous painting from Michelangelo. Some of you have seen this painting. It's very, very famous, and it's called The Creation of Adam. And every time you look at this, you realize, like, it's not really capturing the truth of what God is like. God is not this old man who's a white guy. And Adam obviously didn't look like that. Some of you are like, I look like that. No, I'm kidding. But, but the, image is meant to capture, the image is meant to capture this human longing, this deep desire to connect with God, to, to feel that we're, our lives still matter because they're linked to God's plans for our lives and our purposes for our lives. And you know this, like when you start to lose focus of God's plans for your life, or God's purposes for your life, you start to feel like the rest of your life feels like maybe it doesn't fit together. And the book of Genesis helps us with some of those feelings, some of those questions. If you've read the book of Genesis with us, I also want to remind you that you probably have felt that the ancient writers presented the story of creation in a way that maybe many of us would never have thought of. And so one of the things I want to do as we begin this morning is I want to give you a picture of kind of the way the people in the Bible would have even seen the creation of the world. It's important because if you don't have this image in your mind, the story we're looking at this morning, which is a story of the flood, might not make much sense. And some of you maybe, when you think of the story of the flood, you've seen of a movie you've watched, you have all of these questions. It's this incredible story right at the beginning of the book of Genesis. And this image, before I show it, when I show you this image, some of you will be confused. But it's an image that is one of the ways that if you were to paint the first few chapters of Genesis, just like the way we get it, right? Just in an artistic way, in a way to just get the big picture, it would look something that's very different than how we think of the world. Okay, so you'll see the image here on the screen, and just if you're listening online on a podcast, you've got to take a look at the image. But here's the image. This is how the world would have looked like from their perspective, okay? It would have looked like something like this. It's this circular big creation. The whole world was in the, contained in this, right? No solar systems yet. No idea about like all the other things that we know about today. And the earth it was just would have, would have been understood as being something at the center, Right? And what's profound about this is the writers of the Bible, even when they pray sometimes, they pray by using this image. Look at the Psalms. The Psalms have this, a lot of Psalms like this, but it says, praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. That's like a, such a strange idea for us, to think that there's heaven and then there's water above the heavens. You're like, wow, I would have never thought about it that way. Now, the reason they see this that way is they see water as giving life to everything. So they see that there's water just above everywhere. And this is so hard for us to understand until you realize that we do this sometimes as well. Like if you've ever thought about someone thinking about, hey, God, I pray and I think of God in heaven, we all might not realize this, but God is not up there and heaven is not up, 
right? If you look at our planet, I think Australia is up there, right? But it's like our planet's geography is not meant to capture the truth of what's there. It's how we use language. It's we use language to express something, but we know that the truth is actually, there's a scientific way of seeing that. There's a mathematical way of seeing that. And then there's like this artistic, beautiful way of seeing it that's so beyond that. Now, the biblical writers are not feeling the tension that we feel. We think of that and like, really? That's what they thought? Like, why would they have thought that? Well, you know what? They think of this. They don't have all the telescopes, satellites in the sky, all the different ways that we see all the things around our solar system. So for them, they're like, this is kind of what we were thinking about when, from our perspective, we were thinking of the world. And I was like, this is amazing. Another way we see this in our culture is if you ever look at old maps. If you ever look at old maps, you see the way they would map stuff is so weird like where there's a washroom or where there's running water and whether it was long. And you look at it, you're like, how can anybody use this? Now think about us, like we're Google Maps people. And for us, it's like instantaneous. The map updates all the time for what we need. So we take that view and then we read the Bible and we get stuck. And we're like, I don't understand. Why were they saying this this way? And I wanted you to know this because this morning, we're going to look at a section of the Bible where you have to have a bit of this understanding to realize how they're understanding this idea of a flood. Now, just take a minute and think about that. When you hear the word, the flood, like, what comes to mind? Some of you maybe had, like, flooding in your house, and you're like, you know, you get the heebie-jeebies, I don't know. You get anxiety, uh, flooding. Like, I used to have water problems in my house when we moved in, and everything of, like, water. It rains outside, I wake up. Like, I get so nervous. But you think about the flood, and you think about the ways our culture has maybe, like, maybe, like, stirred our thinking in a certain way to think of this story. So what I want to do together is take us back and hear the story in a bit of a fresh perspective. To just hear it and to be able to maybe see things and not get stuck and just stop, but just keep reading. Saying, God, help us to keep reading this and think about this in a new way. Because what happens at the beginning of this story is something that we left off last week, and if you're watching online, you know this, you can watch on YouTube, but it's that we're dealing with a world that is slowly unraveling because creation has stopped believing that they need to live within the boundaries that God has given us. Now, if you were here last week, I broke a mirror and I tried to explain it and some of you got it. Some of you were like, none of that made sense. Whatever. But the word I gave you is that there's this cosmic disobedience that begins to unravel the way the world works. And if you're reading the Bible, you'll see at different times God highlights that although he's a good God and although he's given us good things, we as humans, not only the first humans, but we today, we continue to doubt his goodness we think, you know, the parameters are just in the way we're going to do our own things. And this is what we're told, again, right before the flood happens, how God begins to speak about what's happening in the creation. He says this, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the plants, and on and on and on and on. This is such like a profound passage. Like, if you read this at home and you get to this, you probably want to just close your Bible and just pray and be like, how bad can we mess things up? How broken can things actually get? And the Bible uses this language to say, not only do we feel when things are broken, but that there's a God who's created things that he notices when things are broken. That he sees the world. And maybe that's hard for you to believe because you're like, if he saw it, he would fix it. And that's usually a view of God that's like a helicopter parent. Like, when there's a problem, you should fly in, fix it, fly back. That's the kind of God we want. It's not the God we get in the Bible. The God of the Bible said, I've created things and there's consequences in the planet, in the world, that you'll feel when things are broken. And the Bible uses this language to talk about God to help us feel that God feels the pain and the things that we see. 
Maybe you don't believe that anymore. Or maybe you know somebody who's like, you know, I don't know, I don't believe that God cares about us, or I don't believe that God cares about me. And the beginning of the Bible tells us that God not only cares, but he sees how wickedness is destroying the planet and it's destroying people's relationship. And then the Bible uses this beautiful language, which is his heart is deeply troubled. Now, I want to teach you a new word, okay? Everyone ready for a new word? I'll say it early because I'll lose you in a little while. Okay, new word, it's a big word, okay? It's a big word, and you're going to be like, I don't know, Dom, it's going to be hard. I didn't come to a church where we have to learn. I just want to be, you know, I'm kidding. But I just want to teach you this word, and if you learn this word and understand it, you'll understand the Bible better. The word is anthropomorphism, okay? I'll say it slowly. Anthropomorphism. It's a big word. Trust me, when you study theology, you learn a lot of these things. Some of you know what the word is. Just curious in the room. How many of you heard this word before? Just hand up if you've heard the word. Some of you maybe have heard it in other literature, another type of language. It's the use of human language to depict something that's not human. In the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, one of the most profound ways that the writers of the Bible help us to understand God's love and His goodness is by using human language to talk about God all along assuming we know that God is not like that. Okay, so just as an exercise, we're going to go back to the verse I just read, and you'll see if you can see it there, right? So just look at this verse again. So it says that God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become. You probably right away, God saw, God doesn't have eyes, so he doesn't see like we see. That's important. And then his heart was deeply troubled. We're like, well, wait a second. We know God doesn't have a heart. So you see already in the literature that we have, it's meant for us to know those are ways that we speak about a God who's beyond language and beyond just the way we speak about things, but it teaches us something, that God cares. That God cares and that He's aware. And this happens throughout the New Testament, and if you don't learn this, you get stuck at different places in the Bible. I always used to get stuck when I used to read the beginning of the Bible, and it used to say that God walked with Adam in the garden, and then I realized, wait a second, God doesn't have what? Or feet. So God doesn't walk, right? So what it's trying to say is there was a companionship as if God was walking with you all the time. Like, you know, and some of you have those poems with the painting that God picked me up and there was only one footstep. And the wall. Any of you see those? They're garbage. Throw them in the garbage. But anyway, so <laughs> I'm kidding. I love you. I love you guys. Some of you are like, I got a tattoo of that. Anyway, it's, it's fine. It's fine. You're all, everybody's welcome here. We understand. Our elders are like, talk to Pastor Dom. Don't make people feel sad. Okay. But it's this idea that we do it all the time. We see language, we use language, and we know it doesn't really mean that. It means something so much more than that. Language, when it's talking about God, doesn't mean less. It means more. It means that there's more there. And there's more there that we're invited to, to step into and invited to listen into and to move closer. You'll feel that at the beginning of this story as well, this flood story. Because as you look at this and you look at the wickedness of mankind, you look at how creation is thinking that they're, they're not dependent on anybody. We don't need God. We don't need rules. We don't need guidelines, right? The next verse that we read catches us off guard. This is what we're told next. It's pretty profound. It says this, but Noah, if you're taking notes and you see this, you're like, whoa, wait a second. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man and Noah walked with God and Noah had three sons. Now, anyone else confused about this? I was so confused. Like, we just were told that the world is full of wickedness and disobedience and God is going to destroy everything. How the heck did Noah become this righteous guy? Like, Noah just showed up? Like, a righteous person? Like, just happened to show up? For years, I've read these stories and I've often realized, like, I have questions and maybe I've missed the deeper question that I should have been asking. The deeper question about 
what if the story is not just about the flood, but really about Noah? What if that's the thing that we've missed? And I'll give you an example of how this happens to everyone. It happens to me. Maybe you're, you're tuning in online and this is new for you. You're like, the Bible's kind of new. I'm just kind of starting to learn about this. I just framed the two different ways that I've wrestled with these questions. I'll give you the modern way, which is scientific, modern, you know, certain way. And then I'll give you the biblical way. Okay, so you'll see this on the slide. It's, maybe it'll help you. In the modern age today, this is what we think about. Did Noah really build the ark? How did he get all the animals in? On and on and on. How did they survive? How did they make sure that the tigers didn't kill the sheep? Where did the birds, you know, where did they get all the food? How many of you have any of those questions? A lot of us, right? The biblical question is, how did Noah live so righteous in a world filled with wickedness and violence? That's the biblical question. And for years of my life, I just stayed on the first question. And I'm like, until I'm not sure about how the ark was built, how big it was, where they found, until I don't have an answer to that, I don't care about the, the biblical question. Now, what I want us to do is I want us to flip it over. I want to say, we can keep asking the modern questions. We can keep exploring things scientifically. We should do that. But we should not wait until we're clear about those before we ask the biblical question. The biblical question is, is it possible to be like Noah today? Is it possible to be people who are committed to loving God, wanting to walk with God in a world that is still very wicked? Is that possible? And Noah invites us to believe that not only is it possible, but that God comes and speaks to people who want to be those kinds of people. That God comes close to those people and reminds them that although things are broken, He still has a plan that He's accomplishing through those people. Now, for years, I've kind of been to debates and university campuses, uh, documentaries that you'll watch, and some of you have seen them. You can, you can kind of go to a museum and see all these things. And at the end of all those things, I never had someone say to me, hey, do you want to be more like Noah? Nobody. At the end, it was more like, we got to find the ark. Like that, I was like, how, how do we miss this? Because when the scientific lens and the modern lens is the only lens we bring to the Bible, guess what? you'll get frustrated, and you'll stop reading. And you'll be like, hey, it's not clear, and I'm not sure, and this is all made up. Nothing's important here. But what's important is that God wants us to feel something so essential for today, that God is still looking for people who did what Noah did. Noah becomes a person who, in a world where everybody's doing their own thing, he decides he's going to do what God wants him to do. And what's so beautiful about this is Noah is able to do this. We don't know how Noah does this because they don't have the law yet. There's no Ten Commandments. All of the things that are going to come on later, Noah doesn't even have that. But Noah knows enough to say that the way others were living was not honoring God. Maybe for you that's as easy as it gets. Maybe for you today God just wants to awaken in you that he has a strength for you to live in the right way in a wicked world. He has that. He has that for me. And I want that and I desire that. Because the next part of the story takes us to this deeper place where God says to Noah, before things get worse, I'm going to tell you how faithful I'm going to be to you. God is going to make a covenant with Noah. And this is what we're told in the next section. It's beautiful. It says, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. This is one of the most important parts of the flood story. That if you... You read it fast and you get stuck. You'll never he hear or understand this. That before the flood comes, before things get a whole lot worse, God makes a promise to Noah. He says, as difficult as things are about to get, I want you to know that I'm going to be with you and I will provide exactly what you need through the storm. The language of covenants in the Bible is language you see throughout the Bible. And a covenant is a word that I think we don't like hear enough in our culture so it doesn't make sense to us. We live in a contract world. 
A contract world is we make a deal, and if you break your side of the deal, you get a lawyer and I pay you money, right? That's the way it works. Contracts, and then we have, like, we have insurance just in case the contracts are broken, right? The Bible is a covenant world. The covenantal world was more like, we're going to make a deal, and if you break your side of this deal, and I break the side of this deal, and we agree, one of us is going to pay dearly, and there's no way to pay our way out of this. There's no just like somebody else will fix this. Covenants were about a deep relationship of trust. And in the ancient world, when the humans destroyed things, when they messed things up, almost all of the other stories that we have, the gods didn't stick to making deals with humans. You know why? Because humans always break their side of the deal. But with Noah, God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You're still the person. You still represent that I'm a God who is good and loves the things he's created. And God begins to do this. And as I read this, I thought, I want to be the kind of person that lives this way. I want to be the kind of person that is open to how God is speaking to me and is open to realizing that I play my part and God plays his part and I can trust God because God makes covenants with us. Now, Noah's covenant is very, very special. It's a reminder for us to be the kind of people who want to honor God in a world where other people don't care. Noah has all kinds of people in this story who don't care about the covenant. They don't care about the ark. Actually, you know what's really, really crazy about the story of Noah? When you read the story in the Bible, the people don't even care that he's building an ark. They don't even ask him questions. Now, maybe some of you have seen movies about this, and you're like, Noah's being faithful, and the people are making fun of him, and, he, you know, and he's going to stick to what's right. None of that happens in the story. Have any of you seen the movie Evan Almighty? It's like a movie about uh, the ark. Have you seen this movie? It's fascinating. If you have young kids, it's a good movie. Some people, you know, some people hate it because they're like, it's not accurate to the word of the Bible, so, so don't watch it. No, whatever. But it's like whatever you feel, if you watch it, what's fascinating about this movie is the way our culture often portrays the biblical stories. And what's amazing is that the more the character in this movie, who is Noah, is obedient, the more crazy he looks. <laughs> this is exactly the way our culture depicts obedience in the Bible. Obedience is a random person who heard from God. He's really, really crazy. And at the end, he wins and God kills everybody. The end. Like, that's how people hear Christianity, what they believe about Christianity. They're like, God punishes people who are bad. And all along, all the details of the things that were meant to catch, it all gets lost. And in the end, what we're made to feel too is like, if you're really a person who wants to live a life that honors God, you're probably just a crazy person. And there's not a lot of people like you. So why even do it? that the story of the Bible tells us that Noah's going to do this and it is going to be a lonely journey for Noah. Very few people are going to care. Very few people are going to ask. And if you're with Noah, and I often think about this, I'm reading a story in the Bible and Noah calls me and says, hey, Noah, hey, Dom, uh, I, God spoke to me. Well, I have to build a big boat because there's a lot of rain coming. I'd be like, dude, are you crazy? Like, what are you talking about? That's what I would say. So we're meant to feel what it's like that sometimes God calls us to places and to things that other people don't understand right away. But that doesn't mean we're crazy. That doesn't mean we're meant to be like, oh, just all right. We can be normal at work with our kids, with our friends, and still be obedient where God has placed us. You can do that. Noah has to learn how to do this. Noah has to learn to do this because what happens next is God begins to help him, and he builds this ark, and the animals begin to come, and there's this beautiful, like, telling, like, if you read it, there's this beautiful capturing of God preserving the animals, telling Noah, bring these things together. But there's also this important warning. That when sin happens in the Bible and when disobedience happens in the world, it's not only Noah and humans that suffer, it's also all of creation that will suffer. This is an important lesson for us. See, we live at a time that says, if I do something bad, it's none of your business. It only hurts me. 
Also, I know people who say, if it's not hurting anybody, just why you bother me with this? I didn't hurt anybody. And the Bible says there's something about sin that you might not see how you're hurting somebody, but in the future, this will hurt somebody. That there's something about what happens in the story that this flood represents that because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, because of the wickedness of the people, animals and creation and all the things that come after, they're going to pay as well. I wish sin was just a problem for me. I wish if I made a mistake with my life and I decided to kind of follow the worst desires of my heart, it would just be about me. But all of you, if you met me, you would say, your kids are going to pay for this, Dom. Your grandchildren are going to pay for this. I know if I do certain things, our church is going to pay for it. You see how simple it is when you just stop to think about it? That Noah's realizing that this sin problem, this disobedience is huge. And he has to learn what it means to trust God and to see God begin to bring all these things together. And there's this profound moment where it says that God shuts Noah in the ark, this image of like, you're protected now. Now this is going to unfold. He might have a lot of questions. If you read this, you read the story this week, you're also going to feel the questions right away. One of the chapters in chapter 7, we see how the flood lasts 40 days. In another one of the chapters, we're told that the flood lasts 150 days. And you're like, okay, which one is it? Well, part of what the writers want to do is they want us to help us also think about the flood as a period of purification. In the Bible, the number 40 was often seen as 40 days or 40 years in the desert. So they're going to use imagery to tell us not only about the flood, but the meaning of the flood underneath that. And if you don't know that, you're like stuck. You're like, why is there two dates here? And why why are they different? And what's God trying to teach us? Now, what he's going to teach us most is that now he's about to remember the image of the earth that they have. He's about to open the gates around the boundaries of the world and the water's going to begin to come in. Now, this has helped me. It might help you, it might not. I often think about that the beginning of this story is God giving his creation boundaries and says, when you live within these boundaries, you will flourish. When you live within these boundaries, you will know how good I am and how much I love you. And they start to break the boundaries. They start to push against the boundaries. They start to doubt the boundaries. And the flood story is God saying to his creation, you don't think boundaries matter? You don't think they matter? Let me show you what the world looks like if I remove the boundaries that I've put in place even for the water around the world. So picture this image because the the biblical writers will write in this way. You'll see it on the next slide. It's like gates get opened in the heavens and water starts to come up from the ground. You can go to the next slide. It says this, that on the seventh day, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens, the heavens don't have windows, by the way, the windows were open, they were opened. Think about God like opening the gates and the windows. And I, I put like yellow, that's my artistic edginess with the yellow circles there. You see that? Some of you see that? I'm getting, I'm getting there, okay? And the bottom, like, and now the springs of the deep, water will come up from the bottom and in chapter eight, this is how the flood ends. That now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens have been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. It's such a profound way to capture this incredible moment of God saying, this needs to be corrected. And God is able to correct and care all at the same time. God is able to to provide consequences and say, I love you at the same time because he made a covenant to Noah. He made a covenant that he's still with him and his family and with those who will come after. Now, if you think about this, you feel this tension. I don't want you to be confused. Because if you've ever been in a place where water is coming up, it does feel like water is coming up from the bottom. And if you've been in a place where there's a lot of rain, and for them, they're like, just rain keeps coming. And they have this imagery of like, this is what it felt like. It's the perspective of what they feel like. If you've read any on this and you're interested in kind of some of the theological conversations around this, there's kind of two debates that 
happen often in theology? Is, was this flood something local to like a local region? It's like just Laval being flooded, you know, just one area? Or is it like a global flood where it's like a province or a, a whole planet? And, and the language kind of implies two different things at different times. So some people have questions about that. Those are great questions. They're great things to explore. They're great things to wonder about. But if they become things that stop us from asking us the deeper questions sometimes, we get stuck. And we forget that God is the God of all of creation that can control the waters. He's the God that is able to stop and make water flow, make water stop. The uh, next time you're going to see this image is in the Exodus. When the people of God are freeing Egypt, what's God going to do? He's going to just gate up the waters to the side and they're going to walk through the waters. And we're like, how did he do it with a wind? For them, they just thought God has an ability to just stop the waters. And then he opens it and the waters can come through. So as you're reading your Bible, just pay attention to that. And be like, well, that's helpful. I don't have to be stuck on this. It's the way they were trying to express that God was doing something that was beyond their understanding, and yet God was reminding them how much he cared for them. At the end of the story, when the flood is done, Noah, some of you know this, will send out a bird, there's a dove, they're trying to see if it's time to get out, and then the most beautiful thing happens. I'm going to read it for you, and I want you to pay attention if you see a pattern in what I read next. This is what it says. Look at the slide and you'll see it. It says, then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Everything that lives and moves about will be food for you. Just, I gave, just as I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood still in it. If you've been reading with us and you've been kind of paying attention, you know that right after the flood is kind of the same language that we get with what we see when God speaks to Adam and Eve. He says, I'm going to bless you with everything again. I want you to be fruitful and multiply. means love each other and experience love at its fullest, but also a boundary. You can eat animals that are still alive and their blood is still in them. Okay, and so there's some of that. Some of you are like, I love sushi. Whatever, it's, it's not part of the thing. But it, it's, we have all of these questions, right, when we think about this. But the point is the pattern, that God is beginning to remind us that creation is happening again that there can be consequences and care, there can be parameters, and God is still with his people because he made a covenant. He made a covenant with them that he will not abandon them in the storms of life. You're here this morning, and you need to hear this. Maybe you're listening online and you, you kind of feel far from God. Some of the times in my life where I have felt the furthest from God is because of storms in my life that I created. Church is a great place to talk about all the storms of the world and never admit that some of the problems we face are because we've created those problems. It's hard to hear that because I didn't come to church to negative things. I want to be positive. The most honest thing God says to us in the story of the flood is like what you see happen next happened because you created it because I'm a good God. And these are the parameters of what happens when you think you can live life without the boundaries I put in place for you. And some of you this morning, maybe it's God asking you to just surrender that some of the things you're carrying, whether it's debts, whether it's conflict, whether it's frustration, it's because of decisions you've made. And God says, I'm a covenant-making God. Just come. Just come and see how I forgive that, how I walk with you in that. You know, when Jesus is going to come and his disciples are going to be with him, what's going to happen is they're going to experience a storm again. And this storm is not something that they planned or they created. It's just a real storm. 
And in the New Testament, Jesus does something that God does in the Old Testament. And here it is. You'll see it on the screen. And he got into the boat and his disciples followed him. And suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping, never overwhelmed, never shocked. And the disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. I've never met anyone that doesn't love this story. They love that. They love it that God steps into the storm and he calms the storm and he does things. But we hate to talk about the other side, right? When some of the storms are our doing. But Jesus still calms those storms as well. He calms the storms even when we've messed up. He steps in and what he's going to do in this story is he's not only going to calm the storm and they're going to be like, wait a second, there's only one God that we know of that controls the waters this way. But what he's also going to do is he's going to make a new covenant with them. Next week, we're going to celebrate communion. And we're going to end this series by taking communion together because it helps us talk about how God and Jesus is still making covenants with us, promising us that he's with us even when things are broken and messed up. So this morning we thought, before we wrap up, I was talking to Dave and the worship team, and there's this beautiful song that's a song that's meant to help us think about what it's like when we've made a mess of our life when we feel the wickedness of our world and to believe that God has not given up on us. Some of you this morning need to hear the song as a prayer over your life. So as, as Dahlia sings and as you hear this, just let God speak to you about what it means that he has strength for you to be a person who loves God in a world that ignores God. That there's a God who has a strength for you when you want to quit or you think God has quit on you. Listen to this before we close.
need a flood in this room for God to wash away the shame, the judgmentalism, the burdens we've carried. Some of you, God has a healing for you you cannot see yet. Don't ever think he's giving up on you. I said it earlier, but in my life, in my life I never believed God was going to give up on me. I was giving up on me. And I need other people that God brought into my life to encourage me that God was not done with me. Or I would not be here today. I'm going to have you stand and I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to pray to the God who makes covenants with his people. Who sent his son to remind us that he keeps his covenants. Who sends his spirit to remind us that he has strength for us to be those who live the right way in a wicked world. But most of all, before I pray, I want you to think of one person in your life that needs to be reminded that God has not given up on them. A friend, a child, a spouse, that God never heals us without using us to remind other people that he can heal them. So can I have you just close your eyes if you're watching online, just close your eyes and think of that person. Maybe that God would bring a person to mind that needs to know that God has not given up on them. They've made mistakes, they've dropped the ball, they've messed up their life, but God hasn't given up on them. And that God would use you to speak words of life to them. That you would be open to be used of God to remind them that God has not given up on them because he hasn't given up on you. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so good to us that we see even with your own followers how they messed up and you kept reminding them that you were healing them and restoring their vision and helping them to see in new ways. We're going to need that strength again. We want to be your disciples, but we need a new perspective on life. We need a new perspective on our pain. We need to be reminded again that not only do you not give up on us, but you invite us to be those who encourage others to remember that you haven't given up on them. We need to be that kind of church at this time in history. And Jesus, we're going to need your strength. I pray that as we continue to grow and read the scriptures and remember that you are calling us to deeper places when we feel stuck and overwhelmed. And for anyone in this room who feels like they came here today and they were ready to quit, that they would know that that's not what you have for them. Not yet. That you have a strength that they need, a perspective that will help them, a peace that will guide them, because you are the covenant-making God. That you are with us in the floods. And that you forgive us when we've created the floods ourselves. You are a good God. As we go now, Jesus, would you stir us with hope and reminding us that you are still making covenants with us that you would draw us back here next week to take communion and to reflect on the beauty and the gift that through Jesus you made a new covenant with us. We pray this in his name. And everyone said amen. Hey, friends, we love you and we thank you. If you're here for the first time, please don't rush off. We'd love to greet you. If you want to pray with someone, we'd love to just invite you just to our prayer space right here. See you next week as we celebrate communion and wrap up the series. God bless everyone.